I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Elon Goldenberg from the Center for a New American Security and Mika Oyang from Third Way. And we're going to talk about the corona correction, uh, the possibility or, or, or sort of rather the question of what corona might do to redraw America's conception of itself and its social compact and maybe uh, reorient uh, our foreign policy. Uh, Mika and Elan, thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast today. Thanks, thanks for, having, for us. having us. So, Elan, let's start with you because it was your uh, Twitter thread that prompted this uh, idea for a conversation. Uh, you are you have suggested that that there's a possibility for some kind of rejuvenation uh, or or course correction uh, that that could be spurred by the the pandemic. Lay out lay out the, the basic argument. You see, sure. Um, so look, basically, um, I would say that since nine eleven, basically that was the last major national shock that we had. That was, I would say, a foreign policy shock. You know, you had the 2008 financial crisis, but I think that was different. That was less of a foreign policy shock. It was also not a shock that involved like people's own basic security. I mean, if you remember the feeling around 9/11 of just being terrified afterwards, I was in New York. I don't know where you guys were, um, but um, you know, and that lasted for a long time, and it fundamentally just changed our politics. It changed the way we thought about things. And it also created this period of time where huge things were suddenly possible in government. Doesn't mean we did the right things. In fact, I think in many ways we did the wrong things. Um, but it was that massive shock uh, to the system that everyone experienced in some form or another uh, that really um, created that moment. Um, and once it solidified everything in the last 20 years, at least around our foreign policy and national security, so much of it has been driven by that that mentality that we all felt after 9-11 and the aftermath of it and the aftermath of the institutions and the government responses uh, and, and the ways life was changed afterwards that, that have remained. Um, and this is the first thing I can remember um, that really, at least in my lifetime, measures up to that, or at least in my lifetime as like a sentient adult. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Now with the, with the corona crisis. Um and so I, you know, right now we're just all going through it and I think we all just need to survive it. And, you know, the focus of the U.S. government and of our institutions and everyone just needs to do is doing our best to get through the moment. Um, but when it's over, it's going to have that same kind of effect. I mean, on our kids, on, you know, on a whole generation of foreign policy thinkers who who come next. I mean, I was in my 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 early 20s when 9-11 happened and it really is formed sort of the basis of my my career um, and informed sort of my entire generation. I and mean, you guys too are all roughly the same age. Um, and I think that for the next 20 years in some form or more longer in some form or another, you know, it's going to be the, the Corona moment that really drives a lot of the thinking of the next generation of foreign policymakers. Well, the, and the framing of, of your argument was appealing to me because it it uh, suggested that there might be a positive uh, outcome of this. Uh, so what's the what's the sort of uh, I don't know what sort of what, what label to put on this, but what's the the new kinds of activities or thinking or self conception that that you imagine might come out of this moment of fear and shock and interconnectivity that 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 we're experiencing right now? 
Sure. Well, there could also definitely be a negative moment that comes out of it, but I'll, I'll talk oh, about the yeah. positive first. And I think, Mika, I know you've also <laughs> been thinking a lot about the negatives. Um, yep. So we should, you know, talk about that too. Um, you know, the positive is if people, you know, let's finally get rid of the 9-11 mindset. You know, let's move on. Like terrorism has been way too big of a focus of our foreign policy for the last 20 years. You know, wars in the Middle East have been way disproportionately covered in the media and in the press. Um, inability to focus on other things like China and global warming and Russia and other challenges that we face, um, you know, have all been drowned out by this. And, and that's going to end. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be that the question is, can it be replaced with something positive? Because it can also be replaced with a lot of negative things, um, you know, and an overfixation on overlearning um, what happened with the coronavirus. Um, but, you know, if we were pulled back and say, OK, what this really teaches us is that we have multiple different transnational challenges that we face and we need to be able to have cooperative responses globally because we don't we, when we don't, we end up with these catastrophes. Um, and what does that say about global warming and how we approach that? And what does it say about how we deal with U.S.-China competition and how we approach that? And, of course, global pandemics going forward. And can we think about reorganizing our global institutions? Can we think about what NATO does in the 21st century, what the U.N. does in the 21st century, what new institutions we need to deal with this um, in a positive way in order to be able to do things like fight, you know, transnational pandemics, global warming? Um, you know, and make people realize, you know, that some of the scariest things out there are not, you know, all about war. I mean, some of the most important things out there aren't about violence and war. They're about things like illness and environment, and health, um, and just that shift in mentality, I think could be, it's a huge opportunity, but obviously it's also a huge risk because, you know, we can have the exact opposite uh, reaction. Well, Mika, did you want to... Uh address right now so, so, what, what the sort of systemic danger is uh, in terms of how we react to this? I mean, well, first, let me sort of respond to what Alana is saying about some of the positives, because I think that, like, you know, one of the things that I do at Third Way is we do a lot of study of, like, sort of people's deep assumptions around national security and how people think in sort of much more sort of unspoken ways, right, about, about how they're conceiving of national security. And I think there are a bunch of things that are really fundamentally changing for people's sense of like, what is a threat and how do we respond to it? Right. Like, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that, right. As Elon mentions, like with pandemics and with climate change, you're seeing things that are really threats to people that are not about other nation states. And it's very flattering that you think we're all the same age, but I'm actually old enough to remember the last big shift in foreign policy before 9-11, which was the end of the cold war and sort of how that the fall, the collapse of the Soviet union, was another opportunity to reshape sort of how we thought about national security, but we didn't. And that wasn't a fear-based one. It was sort of the absence of fear. And we kind of let ourselves drift along, assuming that NATO was still the right tool to be able to respond to geopolitical threats. And we thought about things as just sort of an expansion of that, and, but very much sort of in the nation-state model. 9-11, I think we really saw the rise of the concern about non-state actors, but human right, human bad actors, and what could they do to cause havoc on the global stage? And now this is yet another turn in that, which is non-human, non-state threat, right? Like that we have this, this sense of, is the military, is the intelligence community even the right place to respond? And a lot of people, 
you know, myself included initially think about like, what should the military do here? And there's not a lot that the military can do here, right? The real responses are on the civilian sector, public health, hospitals, first responders, um, and then the threat to the economy. So whether or not people are comfortable maintaining the high levels of military spending that we do in this country when they're not actually empowered to respond to threats, I think is a real question going forward and may reorder the way that we prepare ourselves um, in national security. But when we think about the ways where things could go horribly awry um, and could be bad is, you know, I mentioned this to Alon earlier, um, what you see coming out in this fear and frustration about what's happening in coronavirus is the need to find someone to blame. And especially among the administration and its um, supporters, a real need to scapegoat someone to turn the attention away from what they are not doing well in terms of preparedness. And, and that scapegoat is, is China. And the problem we have as a national security community is that there's plenty to criticize from the Chinese government. They did a lot of things badly in the beginning. They're an authoritarian state. They are the next largest global competitor. But the anti-China rhetoric and the fear means that we may see the same kind of anti-China and anti-Chinese response post-COVID-19 that we did about the Muslim world and Muslims around the world post 9-11, which is that the fear and suspicion drives bad policy reactions. And it's it's uh, depressing and, and hard to imagine that happening in the, in the immediate term when, you know, to someone like me, it's so clear that the biggest deficiency has been our own preparedness and our own uh, lack of investment in public health infrastructure and the like. But of course, one can never go broke uh, betting uh, uh, betting in favor of reasonable <laughs> priority setting in public discourse. So, uh, you know, the, the worst case scenario you lay out is certainly uh, plausible. Um, uh, I, in a minute, I want to get back to the, the sort of silver lining potential here, but let, let's follow this, this thread uh, for, for another beat. Let's say, let's say we follow in the, bad patterns set at the end of, you know, World War One. by the way, was the first time we really failed to learn an important lesson about the international arena changing. And then we did this again with, with the, in the 1990s, where we saw an American leadership that was desperate for a financial peace dividend, rather than thinking about wise stewardship of a post-Cold War world. Uh, we saw this on steroids after 9-11 with the, uh, the, the, the overreaction, which ultimately has sabotaged uh, the United States uh, very significantly while, you know, at the same time claiming hundreds of thousands of lives in, in the war zones that, that we've been involved in. Uh, so what's um, what does the, the worst case scenario look like? Are we are we looking at like uh, authoritarian measures normalized during a, a lockdown coupled with uh, xenophobia and chauvinism also on steroids because it successfully distracts the public from domestic failures? Yeah, I mean, I think that like sort of in the short term, what you see is a real change in people's sense of collective responsibility and individualism, um, like the sort of idea that we as individual actors just get to do what we want to do versus like we all have to act and or be forced to act 
on behalf of the collective. And that's really going to be a fundamental shift in the way our politics and our foreign policy works generally. I think there's a real question about whether or not there's a sort of a resurgent nationalism, as people say. I need to close my borders to those threats out there because if I just shut down and prevent traffic, I can I can have this thing pass me by. And I think that's a real a real danger there. But in the long run, I think that actually China's aggressive um, measures to control coronavirus and therefore their ability to recover faster than as the rest of the world is still dealing with this means that they will be able to exercise soft power to gain other foreign allies in a way that the U.S. will not. And when you look at like the U.S. struggle to provide personal protective equipment to its own medical personnel and the Chinese saying we will be able to ship masks, gloves, whatever around, right, 100,000 masks to Italy or whoever, in a time of crisis, people will remember those countries that had excess to be able to share with them versus those countries that were so unprepared that they needed assistance rather than being able to give assistance. Um, and that, I think, is a fundamental change. And I would suggest that that the United States' uh, uh, inability to lead here is not solely a product of capacity and capability, but also a lack of interest. I mean, the you know the role, the the coordinating role that the U.S. played during the Ebola epidemic, for example, is a role that the U.S. could have uh, absolutely chosen to play here, and it is it is just chosen for I think political reasons or preference reasons not to. Yeah. I mean, and you see this, this was coming even before we got to this moment, right? There have been these stories, um, which maybe I see because I'm in the Asian American community of the Trump administration's sort of xenophobia, anti-China message that was playing out earlier in the administration to investigate Chinese scientists in American medical institutions to the point where those people were forced out. They went back to China. They were doing things like developing test kits and leading provincial responses for China at a time when we just don't have enough of those people here in the U.S. Like, there is a global competition for the best scientific talent to deal with these kinds of things happening. And we used to be a country that took people, no matter what their background, to win scientific and technical challenges. And now we're saying certain kinds of people are not welcome here to bring their brain power to make America better. it puts us in a position where we're not actually able to lead. And that whole attitude that's come in with the Trump administration leaves us poorer off, I think, in the long run. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm here with Mika Oyang and Ilan Goldenberg, and we're talking about the possibility for a corona correction. Before the break, we were talking about the the risks and the downsides uh, of, of this and the rising xenophobia in the aftermath of, of the pandemic. Uh, Ilan, you, you're about to jump in. Sure. Um, well, just to say a couple of things for us to remember as we move forward, basically based on the lessons of 9-11 and previous moments. Um, 
for the next couple of years, especially after the crisis ends, uh, that's when we're, when when the the future then gets defined. You know, when we we sort of take our heads out of the immediate moment. And, and you know, if you look at the 9/11 example, it wasn't you know the immediate months after 9/11 that defined the entire response. It was decisions like invading Iraq. You know, two years later, um, mm. and a couple of the lessons I think that we learned from there is one, um, in that moment, the president has and his people or have tremendous power uh, to impact the debate and the discussion and where it goes. Uh, and two, the ideas that come out of there aren't necessarily new ideas. You know, invading Iraq was not a new idea. Uh, invading Iraq was an idea that had been around throughout the 1990s, uh, you know, by the neoconservatives. They saw a void. They saw a moment for huge political opportunity. They convinced the president this was the right thing to do. The president convinced the, the country this was the right thing to do. And the country was willing, ready, and able to do something massive like this that in the normal environment they would not have been willing, able, and ready to do. Uh, and so what does that mean for a moment here? Well, if Donald Trump is reelected, I think he then has the, he really will have now the opportunity uh, to make some permanent changes uh, to U.S. foreign policy, to really push forward on his sort of America first vision, the types of things that Mika was talking about, closing uh, borders, xenophobia, um, you know, things like breaking the NATO alliance, you know, things like really um, going backwards and how we view the world and, and shattering some of the traditional pieces of the, you know, the world order that's existed since 1945, uh, because he will have the, the pedestal to do it and all the tools of government to do it. Uh, at a moment where there'll be a willingness to, you know, to think big uh, and think different, and we'll have this moment of fluidity. Um, but if you have, you know, a, a President Biden, it looks like he's going to be the nominee on the Democratic side. Um, it's also a huge opportunity then, in that moment, to push in an entirely different direction, uh, to go towards some of these, um, you know, um, you know, looking at a more open world, looking at a world where like climate change now finally uh, becomes a huge issue, um, or at least gets a massive response that it's been deserving for years and years, along with global pandemics, along with similar challenges along those lines. Um, none of the big ideas that are, gonna, that are gonna come out of this reorganization, in my view, are going to be necessarily new. It's just that there's gonna be a moment of fluidity in the, the American public opinion and in and how much we're willing to do as a government and a country that will create that moment to push these ideas forward. And that's also true, by the way, of previous experiences. I mean, you know, Roosevelt um, and Churchill were talking about the New World Order as early as 1942. Um, you know, Roosevelt recognized very quickly that American isolationism, we couldn't repeat the experience after World War I and started planning for, for what would come afterwards very, very soon thereafter. Um, and so... Um, it's really going to be a battle of ideas, and it's one that, frankly, I mean, on the one hand, yes, we all need to be thinking of good ideas and important things to do to to help our, you know, get help get our population and our country through this moment. But for for folks like you know the three of us on the phone, like or or in the, uh, now is the time to also start thinking about making the case for these things um, because it, it's going to be a tremendously critical and important moment um and decisions that get made um you know i mean we're still you know our entire national security bureaucracy is still defined uh by legislation that came after right after world war ii right the 1947 national security act you know our 
you know, um, the way we fly is defined by 9-11, you know, how much security we're willing to accept in exchange for privacy, like these very fundamental questions about, you know, like are going to be affected, you know, uh, it's, this is going to change the way we think about supply chains for pharmaceuticals, for medicals, for all kinds of things. Um, and if we make good decisions in those first couple years, um, and if we invest correctly and we structure correctly, um, then I think it's going to put us, there's a huge opportunity here. Um, and that really requires not having Donald Trump in office. Um, cause if we have Donald Trump in office, I fear that, you know, this really will become like a world war one moment. It will be that bad. It'll be much worse strategically. It'll be much worse than the decisions we made after nine 11. Um, those decisions were catastrophic and a mistake, but I don't think that they, they'll pale, pale in comparison, uh, to what we could see come out of this moment. I mean, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, there's there's some other dangers as well. Uh, you know, when when I when I look at what's unfolding now, I think it's in a way conceptually, it's like 2008's financial crisis uh, plus climate change plus 9/11 in in its different aspects. Um, and I think we know it's very hard for the public imagination and for policymakers, frankly, to uh, mobilize against the kind of slow moving, uh, as Mika said, non-state threat, such as climate change or a global pandemic. Uh, whereas it's fairly, uh, straightforward to mobilize against Afghanistan after 9-11, or, you know, even, uh, the idea of a new cold war with, with, with China, which I think was, uh, uh, sort of the intellectually easy, uh, path for a lot of, a lot of folks, um, in the last, in the last five or six years. Uh, and so here, what we're, what, I mean, what we need in order to not repeat something like the response to world war one is a colossal, uh, investment in, uh, things like research and development and in public led programs that would re-engage people in spheres like, uh, public health, medicine, uh, uh, the kinds of boring, but really important things like global supply chains. Um, and that, um, I mean, it's possible that someone like Donald Trump or someone like Joe Biden, uh, could lead such a, I mean, you know, Trump much less likely, uh, but you know, in their own way, both of them are, are, uh, or certainly Biden is not a revolutionary, right? I mean, he's, he's talked about this crisis as, as a moment where we need to see the United States sort of do its best, but not talk about, uh, messing up the system or changing the system. And, and that alarms me as well, because I think that's, that's part of why we failed to address climate change effectively or why we uh, really saw such a fundamental screw up in the response to the 2008 financial crisis, because we didn't want to fundamentally change the system. So we ended up baking in the same, uh, you know, fundamental defects that, that lead to crazy things like today's uh, fra fragmented global response to, to the pandemic. Uh, so that, you know, those are like collective action uh, problems uh, or, or sort of, you know, global commons problems. Yeah, I think that that's really true. And like one of the things I think that's really shifting and it will, it will be an underlying factor in the way that we make all these decisions is like people's willingness to just sort of let the market take care of things or really demand government intervention to, to make a difference. Right. So when you see things like, again, we come back to the medical equipment, right, Trump invoking the Defense Production Act, you can see a situation where people are much more comfortable with the nationalization of private industry 
to be able to deal with certain kinds of global crises, you know, the idea that like the social safety net might need to be there for people because who knows what's going to happen. Um, sort of the laissez-faire, don't regulate, the market will just take care of us attitude is going to be very hard to justify. The libertarian attitude is very hard to justify in face of the kinds of threats that just swamp the ability of a nation to respond. I mean, when you look at those hospital capacity maps that Harvard assessed and you realize like we are going to quickly run out of hospital beds in this country, the idea that efficiency in the market should be the driver of what we need will change for everyone. And that's going to just, it's going to shift people's thinking and policymaking in ways that I think the older generation of politicians are going to have a hard time grappling with because all of their assumptions about how things work are just not going to be true anymore. Well, and to Ilan's question, uh, Mika, how do you, uh, how do you see uh, the role of people who, uh, you know, people who do the kinds of work we do in uh, sp spreading that new, uh, new gospel or new, or new con conception of, uh, state and collaborative agency rather than uh, libertarian individualism. Yeah. Look, I think that for all of us who are involved in this field, we need to spend a lot more time thinking about the second and third order consequences of the decisions that we make and what that means for the institutions that we build, which means being much more familiar with organizational theory, sort of some of these balance of power questions, right? Going back and studying why things are the way that they are, because we will have to make decisions in somewhat of a crisis environment, but those things will wind up getting hardened over time. And like, if we don't think carefully about what we're doing and sort of think it through at a much more strategic macro perspective, we're going to be left with either sort of a pasted together existing system, which doesn't fit the threat that we have, or a new system where it's so fragile because it was only built for one set of circumstances that it cracks at the next one. And so like, I think that that's a real challenge for us because most of us were raised within a certain set of foreign policy thinking, and we've succeeded because we know how to manipulate or work within that system. And so it's very hard for us to think about like, okay, well, what if that system doesn't exist? What if I'm creating a new system from scratch? How do I, how do I deal with a decision-making process that's not just built for one set of person's decision-making style, but across multiple people? And Ilan, from your from your uh, experience within the national security decision making apparatus, uh, what you know, what how would you answer that question that that Mika just raised? Oh boy! <laughs> In like yeah, two we're minutes not or designed. So. <laughs> you know, we we are. I mean, this is the problem. Like the you know, I will tell you, like even like having like left government um, and figuring out, like you know, oh wow, like I can work anywhere now. I mean, this is like this is actually a good example, right? Like, or I can, you know, I don't have to be at a desktop anymore. I left government in 2015. I mean, even before that, you know, just the ability to move like, the systems in terms of decision-making, the technology, like across the board, these big bureaucracies, they don't move quickly. Um, and it's hard to also like push for like genuinely creative ideas and like big, like game changers in them. But 
again, like these are the moments when you actually can do it. So like, that's what our history tells us. And so, you know, the good news is like now is the, the moment to wipe the slate clean um, and really think those, those, you know, big creative thoughts. But the other thing is, you know, and this actually was also, again, like the less, the, the, the lessons of nine 11, the lessons of, of, you know, previous crisis moments, if we're starting from scratch now, um, you know, then I do think we're in big trouble, but the good news is like, we're not like people have, there've been a lot of people writing, you know, very doing really important, thoughtful work on, Hey, global pandemics are a massive problem and need to be a big driver of our foreign policy going forward. Hey, these transnational threats are a big problem. Hey, we need to think about China differently. Um, these ideas all exist. They are all like pretty well baked um, already in many ways. The key now is to, and they are good ideas. Uh, the key now is, hey, we can actually implement a whole lot of them all at once, um, you know, if we're smart about it. Um, and we're also going to have, I think the other good news thing that we're going to have here is we're going to have a whole new younger generation, because this will take a few years, um, who will understand this issue better and understand its implications in the same way that, look, I went to, I, w I did my undergrad in Arabic uh, before 9-11, right, or in Middle East. And there were like three students in my Arabic class, right? And then I went back to grad school after 9-11, there were like 20 students in my Arabic class, right? You had this massive surge of people, students, money, like society as a whole. I think we're going to have that here too. Like public health programs are going to explode. You know, my kids and maybe maybe people who are like 10 years older than my kids are going to see like being a doctor and being a public health professional and, and being in that and being an epidemiologist are going to be super cool, interesting, competitive jobs. Um, and that's, I think, going to be a good thing. Um, the only the only other problem here and the really the other lesson we need to learn is um, we need to make sure we think about this holistically. Right. The answer, the, the answers to all these questions can't be well, pandemics is the new thing. Let's just focus on that because that was one of the other major mistakes of 9-11, right? It's like, it's all about terrorism now. So let's forget everything we know from before and just make it all about terrorism. We can't forget everything we know from before. We just have to put pandemics into the equation in a much more significant way and think about what's related with pandemics, transnational threats, and other things um, without saying, okay, history is over and begins anew and nothing that we were worried about yesterday matters anymore because it's all pandemics. And to some extent, that's what we did after 9-11 um, with some pretty you know, old assumptions like preemption is a bad idea and preventive war doesn't usually work. Suddenly we're thrown out the window um, with, with, you know, and deterrence doesn't work anymore was another one, right? You can't deter terrorists. So we have to start invading countries. Like, like no, a lot of these things still hold like not everything is wiped clean it's just okay what is different as a result of this well and this, and this is my great fear right because in other parts of the world uh i'm thinking europe uh you don't have um this inane debate that we have in the united states about whether science is real uh so you know we're we're in a country where for at least my entire lifetime of more than 45 years uh you know evolution is debated Science is debated. So, you know, and and also the the question of whether like government is a good tool for public policy. That's also like, you know, very profoundly debated in the American order. So that means that in the middle of yet another radical crisis where we should be doing what 
Elon just suggested, thinking holistically, in some cases, we're going to be fighting a rear guard action uh, to defend science and public policy as, as you know, building blocks. Um, and I would say that unlike 9-11, there is a sort of no-brainer response here, which is to reinvest in the social safety net, reinvest in the kinds of uh, uh, human capital and international co cooperation, which, you know, protect us from things like climate change and pandemics, and which at the same time build tremendous social uh, capability that benefits you even if you don't face the, the threat that you're preparing for. So, you know, unlike 9-11, uh, unlike where we mobilize this huge apparatus of state for this very, uh, very specific and narrow and and exaggerated threat uh, here. If you if you mobilize public health capacity and education and higher education and medical research, uh, those are things that also create wealth and knowledge and 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 well being and and power. Even if you don't have God willing another another epidemic to battle, uh, and that that's the kind of thing I would hope. To see flow out of this crisis moment and and the kind of thing that I I sort of fear, you know, I guess we'll see how this turns out in the next two or three years. Will will the new consensus be, wow, that was silly that we are fighting over science, or will uh, will that be what you know what we're hearing on the in on Capitol Hill in two thousand and twenty two. Yeah, look, I think that we have a real problem going forward because our politics will still be really fractured. And what's very clear is the people on the right will have doubled down on this anti-China rhetoric, right, sort of to the point that's like really sort of vitriolic and and prevents us from actually working with the Chinese about um, problems that are global in nature without whom like if we don't have them working with us, we can't solve them, right? Like there, there are a lot of things that are beyond the capacity of either the U.S. or China to solve individually. We have to work together even as we have serious problems with some of the things they do. But the other thing that I think is really going to be a casualty of this moment is the sense of American exceptionalism. You know, we have lived our entire lives in the foreign policy world, those of us sort of everybody post-World War II with America building the world order, America being the leader at the head of the table, um, chairing all these things, the host of the UN, the, you know, the, the primary engine for NATO. Um, and the way that we have reacted to this crisis, we have not demonstrated that leadership. And the real question is, will the rest of the world turn to someone else and say, you actually seem like you can manage this better than the, than the Americans. And I think even if we have the opportunity to have a new administration come January, I think that we need to do a lot of work as a national security community to understand the way the rest of the world sees us, that it's not just like, oh, well, let's pretend the last four years never happened, but like this strain is in us as a nation. What do they think about that? And what do they think their alternatives are? And if we don't stop and sort of think about it from their perspective, I don't know that we can make effective policy to deal with the global challenges going forward. Yeah, I could be a little more, I mean, on this last point, Mika, I, I can mm -hmm. be a little more optimistic. Um, just in that, I mean, I think what, what Mika is saying is exactly right. This is a massive danger in terms of our standing in the world. Um, but I also think that we still, as a country, have more resources than any other country in the world. We still have more capabilities than any other country in the world. We still have more, sci you know, capable science and the best companies and our 
when we're able to actually marshal those resources. Um, and even like World War II being a good example, I mean, like, you know, we were out to lunch for the first couple of years of World War II. We didn't even join until the end of 1941. We were dragged in, right? I mean, the entire world was consumed by this thing, and our choice was to just stay out. Um, and so the question with this crisis is how long of a time period does it play out, like, play out over and how, you know, is there still time when the U.S. finally gets its act together, which maybe we're finally starting to wrap our heads around, um, to actually still lead, to still be yeah. that leader? Hard to imagine with Trump, but, you know, it's still, you know, it could be that we look at this in four or five years, actually, and are like, no, this is actually a moment where, again, America demonstrated that, like, it does have unique capabilities that nobody else has, Um and can bring the world together. I hope that's where we are in a few years, but it's a real danger that we aren't. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's foreordained that we will, you know, that that outcome will be the case. I think it's a real jump ball whether or not people do, in fact, believe that America has that ability to lead, that we have that scientific capability out there. When you look at what the Trump administration has done in terms of driving some of the scientific talent out of this country and their immigration policies that keep some of the best talent from coming here, when you see that the U.S. and South Korea on the same day discover their first cases of COVID-19 and South Korea was out with a test a week later and the U.S. is still waiting, I think a lot of these things are open questions in the mind of the rest of the world. And uh, and the last time that we saw really creative thinking, including, you know, transformative Keynesian plans and the Marshall Plan, it came after 10 years of Great Depression and five years of, of world war and a genocide. Uh, so let's hope it doesn't require that much of a systemic shock to our world and our values to get people to be willing to, uh, to reimagine and, and hopefully just the, the hell of the last 20 years plus this epidemic, uh, this pandemic will, will be enough, uh, to, to bring about some kind of, of revolution in our thinking about foreign policy and national security. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is Thanasi Kambanis, and you're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Mike Oyang from Third Way and Elon Goldenberg from the Center for a New American Security. Thank you both uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. This was great. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you enjoy what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. See you next time.